History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spectacular people. Welcome to this 375th episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast, Ghost Tours for the Theater of the Mind. I'm your host, Diane. And this is Kelly. On this episode, we are going to be doing a location suggested by our listener, Sand Trooper Mick. And this is the Wyoming Frontier Prison. Have you ever been to Wyoming, Kelly? I've yet to go. There are really beautiful parts of Wyoming, and then there's really plains-like areas <laughs> that are very windy. And I lived in Laramie for four months, and I called it my four months of living in hell. I recall you told me about that. Because it was during the winter, which was freezing. It was windy all the time. And it was a small town. And I'm definitely not a small town girl. I'm not a huge big city girl either. But I need to have more than just one theater in town and that kind of thing. Gotcha. Anyway, we're going to be talking about this prison that had a lot of people die there. And it's got some incredible hauntings going on as well. But before we get into that, we'd like to welcome into the Spooktacular crew, Carol, Laura, Amy, Gypsy Jen, Teresa with no H, John with no H. Nobody wants any H's in their names. Oh, poor letter H. Shannon, who does have an H in her name. <laughs> Shannon showing some love. Jerry with an I, Marta, William John, Lori, Stephanie with an F, Kathy, Kimber, Lisa, Tate, and Weird Darkness, the podcast. Awesome. Thanks for joining us in the Spooktacular crew on Facebook, everybody. And now this moment in oddity. The moment in oddity was suggested by Scott Booker. We're not sure if Bally has an obsession with vampires or if they really think that canine teeth just look prettier when they're filed down, but they've created a pretty bizarre ceremony around this practice. The tooth filing ceremony, or potong Gigi, as people from Bally call it, is observed when a young person comes of age. This is considered a beautiful and sacred ritual in the country. The ceremony has taken place for hundreds of years and is considered the last duty of a parent when preparing a child for the move to adulthood. Early ones were conducted in private at home, but today are an elaborate affair. These ceremonies take place in a temple with lots of prayer, chants, and incense, and a priest or priestess does the filing. The canine teeth are sharp and thought to represent the animal side of humans that usually presents as aggressive or evil behavior. These could be vices that need to be controlled. Filing down the points of the canines is a symbolic gesture of removing the evil from the fangs. Now these young adults can be thought of as angels on the right path versus demons prone to following the lusts of the heart. The fact that smooth canine teeth symbolizes goodness certainly is odd. And here's another unique podcast I'd love you to check out.
Do you like stories so scary that you can't sleep for three days? Do you like exploring the supernatural? Do you like spooky bitches? If you answered yes to any of these questions, we've got the podcast for you. Haunt her? I barely know her. Hosted by me, Zoe Knowlton. And me, Katie Groves. Together we take turns trying to scare the bejesus out of each other. But it's probably just going to be me that gets scared, to be honest. Eh. Check us out at our website for more information at www.hauntherIBarelyKnowHer.com. Stay spooky, my friends. And now, this month in history. month of March, on the 5th in 1770, the Boston Massacre occurred, beginning the road to the American Revolution. Tensions were running high between American colonists and the British when a group of Bostonians started protesting against a small group of British soldiers guarding the Boston Customs House. The colonists soon were hurling insults and snowballs. The soldiers were under orders not to shoot, but they fired into the crowd anyway. The first man struck was an African-American sailor named Crispus Attucks. He would be considered the first hero of the American Revolution. Crispus had been working on whaling ships for 20 years after escaping slavery. Four other colonists were shot and killed, but their identities are lost to history. Paul Revere made a famous engraving depicting the event. British Captain Thomas Preston and eight of his troops were arrested and charged with murder. John Adams was a lawyer at the time, and he defended the British. The captain and six soldiers were acquitted, while two others were found guilty of manslaughter and punished with branding before being released. What started as a small event made martyrs of the protesters and united the colonies in a desire for freedom from British tyranny. Wyoming can be a beautiful state, but it can also be harsh, particularly in the winter. The Wyoming Frontier Prison was a brutal place with no heat during the savage winters, and if a prisoner could manage to survive that, there were other threats to their life. Hundreds lost their lives via murder, suicide, and execution. Enough men suffered and died here that a spiritual residue has built up, and there are many ghost stories connected to the prison. Join us as we explore the history and haunts of the Wyoming Frontier Prison. The city of Rollins is where the Frontier Prison is located. Rollins is in the southern part of Wyoming and was originally part of an area that was called Carbon County that covered the entire width of the Wyoming Territory. The term carbon reflected the coal deposits found here. Every trail leading west crossed through here from the Oregon Trail to the Mormon Trail and even the Union Pacific Railroad. General John A. Rollins was the chief of staff of the U.S. Army when he brought a group of troops through to protect the surveyors, laying out the first transcontinental route in 1867. It must have been hot because Rollins kept wishing for a cold drink of water. A couple of scouts from his group went out and stumbled upon a natural spring with cool, drinkable water. 
They brought some back for General Rollins, and he declared that the water was the most refreshing drink he had ever tasted. He then said, if anything is ever named after me, I hope it will be a spring of water. (laughs) I can't imagine somebody being like, oh, I get to have my name put on something? How about a spring of water? He must have been really thirsty. It quenched his thirst so very well. I guess. (laughs) And so the spring became Rollins Springs, and that is what the community that built up around it was known as until 1886 when the city was incorporated and the name was shortened to just Rollins. I've been to Rollins a couple times. I had no idea that it had that background behind it. I guess I should have had a drink of water while I was there. (laughs) The more you know. The land where the prison was built was bought from the railroad in 1888, and the cornerstone was laid that same year. The weather that we mentioned in the intro was so bad after construction on the prison started that it took 13 years to complete. Economic issues also factored in, as funding was hard to come by from the state. Local granite stone was used as the construction material. The design was by Salt Lake City architect Warren E. Ware and is in the Richardsonian Romanesque style. There are two castle-like turrets with conical roofs on either side of the main structure that rises three and a half levels. The main building has a main entrance topped by a wide, semicircular arch with radiating voussoirs, which are tapered stones. The upper story windows have similar decorative archways above them. So to describe that for people who may not be able to picture it in their brains, imagine like sunbeams that are coming off of, radiating off of the sun, kind of coming up in these streaks. When you see that above an arched window or an archway, that's what those are technically called. Ah, gotcha. Stepping inside the entrance, there is a massive iron bar gate that shields the front door, side lights, and transom. There's also a small decorated gabled dormer on the roof. This main building was the administration building that originally housed offices on the first floor, an infirmary and a few cells for women on the second floor, and a chapel on the third floor. There were women at this prison, but very few, and only for a few years. Annie Bruce was one of the women who did time here. Annie liked baking pies, and on March 20th, 1907, she baked five delicious pies. Well, maybe that one tasted a little different. And it should have, because she poured a full bottle, Kelly, a full bottle of strychnine into that pie. Good grief. She wanted to do them in well. She was going to do somebody in. Annie then put the pie in her father's lunch, and after about three bites, he crumpled over in horrendous pain. His co-workers got him medical care, but it was too late, and James Bruce died with enough poison in his body to kill five men. They traced it back to Annie, and she was convicted of manslaughter, the first time a woman had been convicted of any degree of murder in Wyoming. Get a load of this. So she's the first woman, kills her father, whole bottle of poison, and she was 14 years old. Oh my gosh. She told the court, While I was in the act of making the pies, a feeling or a wish came over me to kill someone, and this feeling I could not resist. Dang. (laughs) I just can't even imagine. I was just baking this cherry pie, and I thought, wow, I'd like to kill somebody today. Let's go pour a whole bottle of strychnine in it. And what's amazing about this is we're talking back in at this time, you know, 1907. So it's not like she's watching violence on TV or something, got inspired. She definitely had a little something cuckoo going on. Just a little. She was only sentenced to four years. She actually only ended up serving one of them at the Wyoming Frontier Prison. She was moved to the Colorado State Penitentiary by request of her family. She was the last woman to serve time at the Wyoming Frontier Prison. And I believe when I read the rest of her bio, she eventually ends up getting married and having kids and I guess lived a perfectly fine life after that. That is so bizarre. Which is really bizarre because you think if somebody has a compulsion like this, how many serial killers have we heard that from that they just had to kill somebody they could not resist? 
Apparently she got rid of that compulsion or we just didn't find out who else she might have gotten. <laughs> right. Another female prisoner here was also named Annie, Annie Groves. She had worked in a nearby town as a lady of the evening and developed a bad relationship with one of her customers. His name was James Passwater, and Annie blamed him for giving her a venereal disease. I'm just thinking, I mean, you are a lady of the evening. How can you pinpoint? (laughs) After a sore destroyed her lower lip, she decided to exact revenge, and she got herself a gun. Annie's got a gun. (laughs) (laughs) She walked into the saloon where Passwater was sitting, and she aimed for the back of his head. She missed, just grazing his hat and hitting another man in the shoulder. Annie was arrested and sentenced to a year of hard labor at the jail. Her uh, husband, yes, Annie was married, (laughs) got her a pardon after six months, and the couple left the state. So one has to wonder, where was the husband when she was doing the Lady of the Evening stuff? I don't know. And was he okay with that? And then when she got arrested, he's like, hey, babe, I'll get you out. She was bringing home the bacon. And other things. I'm bringing home some other things. I'm sure she was real attractive without that lower lip anymore. The prison finally opened in December of 1901 and was originally known as the Wyoming State Penitentiary. This was Wyoming's first state prison. There was only the main administration building and cell block A that featured 104 cells at that time. And there was no running water, no electricity, and no heat. This jail was built to take some of the pressure off the federal prison in nearby Laramie. And so the first prisoners brought in came from that facility. Work on expanding the jail started almost immediately as more room was needed. These additions would include guard quarters, a water tower, boiler and pump houses, horse barn, warden's house, storage buildings, a commissary, and garages. Most continued the Romanesque style, but a few incorporated mission style. Cell block A didn't get running hot water until 1978. Wow. (laughs) Good grief. Overcrowding would always be an issue, and in the 80 years that the prison was open, 13,500 people would pass through its doors, including 11 women. No women would be housed at the prison after 1909. And as you guys heard, Annie Bruce was the last of those women to be there. Cell Block B was added in 1950, and with this came solitary confinement cells. A plus would be that a heating system was part of this cell block, along with hot running water. In 1966, Cell Block C was added which included 36 cells that were set aside for inmates who were discipline issues. The roughest of the rough would be housed between these two cell blocks, and this prison was not about rehabilitation. This place dished out the punishment. Solitary confinement was always full, and there were various varieties of these. And there was a punishment pole. Men would be handcuffed to this and then whipped with rubber hoses. Security was not great for many years, and there were many escapes. James Williams was an inmate who was killed while trying to escape. There were also suicides, mostly from men throwing themselves from upper floors. One guard that worked in Tower 9 was so stressed out that he also committed suicide. Two men died from freezing to death in cells that had no heat. Yeah, so you can imagine, it gets pretty brutally cold there in Wyoming. I'm surprised they didn't have more issues with that. I will say after that happened, they realized that these two cells in particular were an issue, so then they stopped putting people in them. So they must have been in an area that really didn't get any heat at all. The death house was added in 1916 for those who were sentenced to death. There were six cells, and executions would take place inside as well. First there were hangings, and then the gas chamber was added. The worst part of this prison probably would have to be the Julian Gallows. 
We've never heard of anything like this. Inmates were executed using this device from 1912 to 1933. This invention forced the inmates to kill themselves. What the inmate would do is step out onto a trapdoor and a stream of water was started that would eventually open the trapdoor and the prisoner would drop through. So I don't know if it like weighed it down so heavily that it dropped through. I It just was weird to me because I'm like, if he's actually standing on it, you think that would cause enough weight to cause it to fall. So I don't know all of the mechanics necessary, but I guess it helped prevent them from having to have somebody actually pull the lever. Yeah, be the executioner. The only problem with this is that the drop was not far enough to break the man's neck, and they would then take several minutes to strangle. Nine men met their fate on the Julian Gallows. One has to wonder why this issue was never fixed. The gas chamber was added in 1936 when the state of Wyoming chose that as their new execution method. Hydrocyanic acid gas was used as the death agent. Five men would die in the gas chamber that had windows all around it, so it was like this semicircle, and then people could watch as the execution took place. Great. And they're not very big windows, so I, I could just imagine you're looking up and there's all these people crowded into the windows. In all, 14 men were executed at this prison. One of the more heinous events connected to the prison occurred in 1912. Details of inmate Frank Wigfall's biography are hard to trace. He died at the prison at either the age of 39 or 49. He was born in South Carolina and came to Wyoming when he was 24. In 1901, Wigfall was arrested in Cheyenne on the charge of assault with intent to kill. He had gotten into a fight in a saloon and stabbed Ollie Buckley, who survived. Wigfall was arrested, convicted, and sentenced to serve 18 months at the prison in Rollins. When he was released, he moved to Laramie, where he shared a room with a man who had a lady friend named Mrs. Kruppa. This woman had a 12-year-old daughter named Helen, and before long, Wigfall had been arrested for attempted rape of Helen. Wigfall pled guilty to avoid a trial and begged to be sent off to jail quickly because he feared lynching. He was sentenced to 14 years. During his time in the jail, an older woman whom all the prisoners called Granny Higgins would bring fresh-baked cookies for the prisoners. They all loved her. When Wigfall was released, he went to Granny Higgins' house and sexually assaulted her after breaking her door down with an axe. He ran away, but a posse tracked him down. Now, while he'd been put in jail before to protect him from lynching, this time the inmates would be the danger. John Neal was the cell house guard, and he was doing morning inspections of cells on Tier 3 when a group of 40 inmates overtook him and locked him in a cell. This group then grabbed Wigfall and put a rope around his neck and marched him up the stairs to the top floor. They then threw him over the rail and hanged him. Newspapers across the nation reported, Convicts keep secret pact. Full details of lynching may never be known. It was rumored that the inmates had threatened that anyone who squealed would be the next to hang. Prisoners did have work at the Wyoming Frontier Prison. The prison produced brooms over a period of 16 years, but this ended in 1917 when inmates burned down the broom factory during a riot. The building was rebuilt and became a shirt factory, which brought in tons of revenue for the state. This was closed in 1934 and transformed into a woolen mill in 1935. The mill won the Navy E in 1942 for the superior quality blankets they produced during World War II for the military. After the war, production switched over to license plates and this would continue until the jail closed in 1981. The property was abandoned after closing until 1987, when it was used as a film location for a low-budget movie titled Prison, starring Viggo Mortensen. Since the prison had not been set aside as a historic site, it wasn't protected, and the film production caused some major damage. This got preservationists involved, and a joint powers board was formed. They renamed the jail the Wyoming Frontier Prison and reopened it as a museum. The prison got its listing on the National Registry of Historic Places and now offers daily tours. 
Approximately 15,000 visitors pass through the doors annually. And now here's a message about the sponsor of this episode, Stereo. Kelly, we've been having so much fun with the Stereo app. Yes, we have. It's a blast. We've been talking about all kinds of different topics. We want to hear from you guys some of the topics that you would love to hear us talk about, too, especially if you want to talk about them, because that's the great thing about Stereo. This is a live social conversation, so it's you and us talking to each other. It's live, so it's talking to us right there. We're right there with them. It's not just listening to us after the fact like a podcast is. Exactly. We don't have to do any research or editing. That's big for me because (laughs) I hate doing the audio editing on the podcast. (laughs) You do spend a lot of time working on that. We want you guys to join us at Stereo. The way you do that is go to Stereo.com forward slash History Ghost Bump. And then you can download the app from there. Make sure that you're following History Ghost Bump. And Kelly is also over there under Kelly Rang. So you can follow her as well. You will get notifications when we go live. So we've been doing this right now on Thursdays and Saturdays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Again, please join us at Stereo.com forward slash History Ghost Bump. Download the app and then follow us. See you guys there. This Valentine's Day, Dunkin's got the perfect pairings to show your love. So get down on one knee with a dozen brownie batter donuts and a cocoa mocha signature latte. Or make them swoon with a strawberry dragon fruit Dunkin' refresher with a Cupid's Choice Donut. Are you ready for love? America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer. One of the inmates here was Bill Carlisle, who was dubbed the Gentleman Bandit. He was nicknamed this because he never shot anyone and didn't take money from women, children, or servicemen. He started his criminal life in 1916 by robbing his first train, a Union Pacific passenger train. Carlisle put on a white mask and pulled out a gun, ordering a sleeping porter to collect money from the male passengers. The gun he used was actually a glass gun, Kelly, that had had candy in it. So he bought it at a candy <laughs> shop oh in the shape of a gun. I think they even had these when we were kids, little plastic guns that had the candies in them and stuff. Yeah. And then he had a toy gun to play with afterward. I'm assuming he like put it in his pocket and just had it sticking out. Kind of like you see in the movies. like poking into somebody's back. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he escaped the train by jumping off the top of one of the cars and rolling away into the brush. A posse went out after him, but he eluded them. He then went after the Overland Limited on April 4th, 1916. He got away from that train, too, and went on to rob another train later that month. This time, Carlisle was captured and he was sentenced to life in prison. He was a model prisoner at the Wyoming Frontier Prison until he escaped. He worked in the shirt factory and hid himself in a packing crate full of shirts. Carlisle got out of the box, boarded a train, and proceeded to rob the men. A posse was already after him and knew he was on the train. When he jumped from the train, he was shot in the wrist, but still managed to make a run for it. The posse caught up with him two weeks later and he had a bad infection from his bullet wound. He was returned to prison on December 18, 1919. He was paroled on good behavior in 1936 and married the nurse who took care of his bullet wound. Aww. So I'm thinking he was returned to prison in 1919, and then he gets out in 1936 and marries her, so she must have waited for him. Sounds that way. They opened a hotel together in Laramie and eventually moved to Pennsylvania, where he died of cancer at the age of 74. Al Biscaro entered the prison in 1920 on charges of grand larceny. He went by several names. Charles Nichols and William Morgan were a couple of his other names. He was a lifelong criminal who had already served three prison terms and was considered a really violent guy. He did, however, prove to be a model prisoner until he decided to escape, and he did this in a huge way. Four months after he was put in the prison, he developed appendicitis. 
the doctor in the prison was named Dr. Barber, and he did an emergency appendectomy on Biscaro, who stayed in the infirmary for nearly a month. Biscaro asked for a meeting with the warden, who was named Hansel, or with the deputy warden named Kiefer. Both said they were too busy, and this seemed to set Biscaro off. A man named Rich Magor came into the prison to do some handyman work. Dr. Barber had told him that he would give him a ride back to town, and so when he was finished, he went to the infirmary to wait for the doctor to get off work. Neither Dr. Barber or Mager knew that Biscaro's wife had somehow gotten a gun to him. He pulled out this revolver and everyone in the infirmary was held at gunpoint. This included Mager, Dr. Barber, a guard, and seven other convicts. He told the guard to take his demands to the warden. He wanted a car brought to the infirmary door with four women inside. wonder if his wife knew that he had made that request. And for all the guards to be removed. If these demands were not met, he said he would kill the doctor, who had saved his life, and Magor. Dr. Barber and Mager offered themselves in place of the women, so Biscaro agreed to take them hostage instead. The doctor also offered his own car, which was near the infirmary. The warden agreed to have the guards stand down until Biscaro was two blocks away. Biscaro loaded up his hostages and held a gun to Dr. Barber's head as he ordered him to drive. A posse set off almost immediately, and Biscaro told Mager to tell the warden if they continued their pursuit, he would kill the doctor, and then he kicked Mager out of the car while it was traveling at 45 miles per hour. So I guess he had to trust that it wasn't going to kill him or anything to push him out I of the car. I guess so. Mager managed to survive the tumble without much injury and relayed the message. But the warden wouldn't have to worry about the doctor for long. Dr. Barber knew he was a dead man, and so he did a brave thing, throwing his weight behind the wheel and wrecking his car on purpose. The doctor made his way out of the wreckage and ran, nearly being shot as Biscaro opened fire. Biscaro ran into a nearby ravine to hide. The posse began searching for him and heard three shots. When they followed the direction of the shots, they found Biscaro dead with self-inflicted wounds to his heart and head. The third bullet was never found. Biscaro's wife, Grace Nichols, later confessed to providing the gun for her husband, saying, I'd do it again. When she was allowed to see Biscaro's body, she said to him, well, old scout, guess I will finish your sentence. And again, I wonder if she knows about that initial request for four women in the car. <laughs> now, well, I mean, maybe he just wanted them as hostages. That's what I was thinking. Maybe he was just thinking women are always treated like they're more important than men. So it might be more important that I have these four women as hostages. But I also wonder about those shots. I mean, I'm sure it is possible to shoot yourself in the heart and then in the head. Definitely not the other way around. But I still would think, wow, if you've shot yourself in the heart, you'd still be able to shoot yourself in the head and then fire off another bullet, too. So I don't know if they were necessarily self-inflicted. Yeah, it is pretty curious because even to be able to hold the gun that way, then to have the strength to mm -hmm. again shoot. But who knows? Who knows? There are many ghost stories connected to this site. Many visitors and staff have seen the spirit of a black cat roaming about the cells. And there's a good reason for that. The staff needed to test the mixer for the gas chamber, and most times they would use a pig. But on this occasion, they found a stray black cat and put it in the gas chamber. I was like, you jerks. Yeah, that's upsetting. A tour guide named Erin was in A Block, and she was coming out of a cell. And when she did, a black cat darted out in front of her. He went around the corner, and another tour guide named Molly was standing there, and she saw the cat too, and then it just disappeared. Solitary confinement, or the dungeon house, or the black hole, had all these different names that were used by all the inmates, has a lot of activity. And most people who spend any amount of time down there believe that a, that a malevolent spirit resides there and threatens anyone who ventures down there. There are those who call the whole prison a death house. More than 200 prisoners died here. 
Some of their spirits remain. Ted Ford was a former guide at the museum, and he claimed to see the figure of a man one day. He was standing in a doorway. So Ted approached him, and he disappeared. Another tour guide named Caitlin saw a similar figure. She, too, saw him in a doorway after turning around, and she was shocked to see him there. She thought somebody had broken in, so she shouted, Hello, to let him know that she saw him. She walked towards him, shouting, Hey, and he backed away in a room. And when she got to the doorway, he was nowhere in the room. The interesting backstory is that both of these guides saw this man in the same doorway, and this was near where a guard was beaten and stabbed to death by two inmates. They were drunk on some prison hooch. Huge. I don't know how anybody could drink that stuff. I know. Because it, it was just grosses me out fermented nasty fruit and Lord only knows okay. what else they'd throw in there. They dragged him down some stairs that led into the room where the ghost had disappeared. Was this shadow man the murdered guard? A full-bodied apparition of a man wearing a brimmed hat has been seen in the death house where inmates were hanged. Most apparitions are seen out of the corner of the eye. Back to that story about Wigfall. When conditions are right, his lynching is played over as if on a loop. The Destination Mystery team investigated the jail in July of 2020. So that's just this last year. And they believe they captured an apparition in the upstairs area of the chapel. It's an interesting capture. We'll share a still photo on Instagram and you can see what you think. Tina Hall was museum director back in 2001. She claimed to hear booted footsteps outside the public bathroom. When she walked over to the area, no one was there. This had once been the guard's kitchen. Another former tour guide named Becky Munsinger once saw a dark-haired man wearing a gray shirt and gray pants while walking a cell block one day. This next story that we're going to tell about one of the inmates here is pretty uh, tough. So if you don't like to hear about really bad things happening to children you might want to skip forward about five minutes. Andrew Pixley was one of the most notorious prisoners. A family from Chicago was in Jackson Hole on a ski vacation, and he raped and killed the two young daughters, 11 and 12. The beating was horrible, and there was evidence of cannibalism. While he was in his cell, he carved the faces of his female victims on the walls of the cell and referred to them as his guardian angels. Those carvings are still visible in the cell. He was killed in the gas chamber in 1965, and he took longer to die than any other man in the death house. Most inmates took three minutes to die in the chamber. Pixley took a full six minutes. A tour guide named Mike calls this cell the scariest one in the death house, and he liked to tell guests on his tours that it took longer to kill Pixley because it's harder to kill evil. He had a chilling experience one day. He was recording all the dates of the executions in the prison, and he went up to the hanging room to verify some dates, because they have them posted on the wall up there. It was dark, and he needed a flashlight. The minute the beam fell upon the black eyes of Pixley and his mugshots, Mike heard the sobbing of little girls. The sound was coming from the gas chamber. He was scared to death, especially when he realized the date. It was the same day that Pixley had been executed. They light a candle in there during tours, and it flares brighter all the time. Another tour guide named Susie says the hair on the back of her neck always stands up when she's in that cell and talking about this prisoner. And Pixley, when they announced the date of his execution in court, he just laughed. And this guy was a little, something lovely. was missing. Yeah, <laughs> lovely human being, not. Ghost Adventures investigated the prison in 2013. They captured a lot of unexplained noises on their audio recorder. To us, it sounded similar to banging on cell bars. So I think that that's what they were picking up on. They had a camera spin out in a shower room and fall down by itself, and they all heard a male voice audibly. They checked the prison to make sure nobody was in there with them, and they were the only ones there. Billy was sitting in a cell block by himself and saw a light. 
He described it being as if a guard was walking the block with a flashlight, but he was alone in that area. The guys felt like they got some good evidence. It was definitely interesting when I watched that episode. The Wyoming Frontier Prison was a harsh and cruel place that became the final home for some 200 inmates who would not leave this location alive. Is it possible that some of their spirits are still here, trapped or otherwise? Is the Wyoming Frontier Prison haunted? That is for you to decide. Well, I feel bummed that while I was living there, I didn't make my way over to this museum that was there. I didn't even know it was there. (laughs) Definitely missed out. We encourage you guys to check out our website at historyghostbump.com. And if you want to send us some feedback, you can do that at historyghostbump at gmail.com. I got an email from Maya. She found our podcast a few months ago, and she said she's already addicted to it. She says, I love the Haunted Cemetery episodes, and I can't wait for you to make more. I've noticed that in most of the Haunted Cemetery episodes, you wonder why ghosts would want to hang out with other dead people, and I have a theory. Most ghosts that are in cemeteries seem to be from the 19th and early 20th centuries. Back then, there were a lot of body snatchers who sold the dead bodies to universities to use as cadavers. Since ghosts don't seem to have the same perception of time as we do, I wonder if they hang out with their body to protect it because they think someone might try to steal it. Oh, could be. When I read that, it got my brain going, too. What was the other thing that they used to do in cemeteries during the Victorian era? They used to have picnics. So it makes you wonder if sometimes the spirits are staying with their bodies because they're waiting for their family to come visit. Could be. I never really thought that. I just like, your body's dead. It's not doing anything. Everybody else around you is dead. So why would you hang out there? But if you think your family might be coming back. Yeah, that would make sense. Yeah. I also just listened to the most recent episode, The Legend of the Count of St. Germain, and you were wondering how he painted gems. I think that maybe he wasn't actually putting paint on the gems, but was painting them on canvases like he was a painter, if that makes any sense. Oh, huh. And I was like, I had not even thought about that, but I bet that's more than likely because he made them look lifelike. Right, right. So So he he had a really good way of doing the 3D effect. Yes. Felt like you could almost reach out and pick one up. Exactly. So I think she's totally right there. I don't even know why I didn't think about that because he was a painter. Right. And I didn't even consider that (laughs) that idea either. So thank you. (laughs) Which makes more common sense because even I was like, why would you paint a gem? (laughs) I mean, they're pretty. You don't want to put paint on it. How stupid. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Lastly, my favorite episode was the Velisca Axe murder house investigation. The spirit box session creeped me out. Not going to lie, but here's some things that she heard. So she thought that she heard the first random message at 4720. She heard, they are looking. Oh. And I went. I'm going to have to re-listen to that. (laughs) Yeah. I was like, I'm glad that we didn't hear that because I'd be like, who's they? Are they talking about us? And we're looking. (laughs) Do they they think we're looking at them? Or At 5404, when you asked the spirit what its name was, it sounded like it said Frank. And that's what you guys had thought it said as well. So I did some digging and realized that the first suspect in the murder's name was Frank Jones. If he was the killer, then I don't know why he'd be hanging around the place where he murdered six people, but it's an interesting coincidence. And I know how you feel about coincidences, Diane. (laughs) Well, this is true. And again, I don't know why we didn't check into that a little bit further, but when I wrote her back, I said, you know, there's a lot of people who've investigated that swear up and down that the killer is inside that house. And we were always like, well, first of all, he didn't die there. Why would he be back there? But obviously, it was a pretty big moment in his life, too, to do such a heinous crime. Clearly. Maybe it's a curse for him to be stuck there, too. I just hate to think that he's there with those children still. Right. But maybe. Maybe that's why that name came through. And then she said, at 5507, it sounds like the spirit says Bobby Hall. I looked for a Bobby Hall in Villisca, and it turns out that was a very common name. So I don't think that that was really anything. 
So thank you so much for sharing that, Maya. Yes, we definitely appreciate your input. And then Jamie and the crew had written, so just a little funny thing happened this morning. My husband and I recently moved into a house. It's a fixer-upper for sure. Not a lot of maintenance was done, so we're having to do more work than anticipated. Anyways, the dishwasher rinse cap was missing, and I couldn't find one to replace it online for under 50 bucks. One of those small things that was bugging me. The original owner of the house died about a year after building the house. Apparently, it was his pride and joy. It was originally built so solidly that the bones are still good. Well, we've been doing projects, and my constant refrain is, if I'm going to do it, I want it done right. Well, this morning, the dishwasher cap was sitting right at the bottom of the dishwasher under the rack. I've wiped this entire machine down inside and out, taken out the racks, and sanitized everything, and run it about 30 times. That cap was not inside the machine. If the cap was where it was sitting, it would have most likely been potentially melted by the heating coil. Part of me wonders if the man who passed is a fan of our restoration and gave us the lost cap back. Possibly. I don't know, but I <laughs> I can't think of another explanation unless it was caught somewhere in the machine that she couldn't see it and it dropped down. Yeah, but, that's the only other alternative, but I, it doesn't sound like she would have missed that upon her thorough cleaning. And frankly, most dishwashers are just big rectangles with racks in them and then the stuff at the bottom. Exactly. With a little, I guess it has the element that spins that shoots the water. But even if the cap was on that, you ran it 30 times, it would have fallen way before. So I don't know. It does sound to me like somebody had that cap somewhere and put it there. or He had maybe removed it before he died so he knew where he put it. Yeah, and then possibly. He said, oh, wait, I, I left it over here. Let me <laughs> grab that for you. But I thought that was a cool story. Definitely. want to thank you guys for tuning in to this episode. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Kelly. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode was brought to you by our executive producers. Dispatches from the Grave Digger. We want to thank Heather Issery for increasing your support. We're going to be burying you under an obelisk tombstone. Thank you so much for supporting HGB. And this episode is brought to you by Stereo.com. And don't forget, guys, that we've got brand new content going live on Stereo Thursdays and Saturdays, 8 p.m. Eastern Time. You can join us there stereo.com forward slash history goes bump download the app and follow us and here's a little sampling of what you're missing if you haven't been there how are you i'm here i'm busy and or anything but just this feeling of there's something like swishing behind me and everything other than that i didn't really get that much of an intrusive feeling of touch I have a question for Whitney. I'd like to know what the difference is between a sensitive and an empath. Great question. Very good question. So again, go to Stereo.com forward slash history goes bump. Download the app and follow us. Make sure you join us on the next one because we're going to be talking about shadow people. We'd love to hear your experiences that you may have had with them or what do you think is a shadow person? Absolutely. Please join us and share your experiences. Be sociable. Drop the chain rattling, neck biting, and shape shifting. And join us on Facebook and Twitter at History Goes Bump. Like the page and follow us.
<laughs> what? You were flipping your hair trying to make me laugh again. I'm like cousin it. I have yet to be there. Nah, nah, nah. That's not what I want to say. <laughs> this is considered a beautiful and sacred ritual. In- ritual. I always say an extra R in <laughs> Ritual roll. You got Rick roll. Uh, I know. Every time never you say it, that's what I think. Rick roll. <laughs> never gonna give. Never gonna give. <laughs> this is considered a beautiful and sacred ritual. I can't say that word <laughs> every freaking time. Take 527. Numbers. John Neal was the cell house guard and he was doing morning inspections of sales on... Te- of sales? Of sales. He was inspecting He was the checking sales. out those sales. Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. Well, isn't that what they do for big time sales? That sounds like a monster jam like truck rally or something. Well, I guess it does. Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. <laughs> Come to the Monster Jam. (laughs) Hey, we've got a new gig for you. (laughs) Newspapers across the nate... Across? I I sound like water concrete. (laughs) You kind of did. Well, that was a very good imitation. (laughs) And transformed into a woolen mill. Mail? Mail. We are having a hard time speaking (laughs) unless we're doing it in our southern accents. 